0: Welcome to the Barry Sax Show. Thanks for joining me on the Barry Sax Show. I'm Barry Cockcroft, and I'll be hosting this podcast with guest saxophonists from around the world. We will be exploring the stories behind these great musicians, with telling insights into how they got started and the ongoing development of their careers. Thanks for being here on this adventure, and please subscribe for a new episode each week. The details of each episode, including a transcript, the show notes and any links, can be found at barrysax.com. Matthew Lombard is a South African concert saxophonist. He's founding director of the South African Saxophone Society and helped to plan the first national saxophone symposium in 2014. He has performed as chamber musician and soloist in South Africa, North America, China, England, Scotland, Croatia, and Germany, and is proud to be an ambassador of the Henry Selmer Paris Company. In 2017, Matthew Lombard founded the South African Saxophone Society to further enrich the musical culture in South Africa by promoting the development of saxophonists. The Society will support professional development of saxophone educators and performers, contribute to the international academic community, provide educational support to underserved rural communities in outreach projects, and ultimately aim to host national and international conferences and congresses. Matthew actively commissions new music through the South African Music Rights Organization and continues to premiere these works internationally. He completed his Master of Music degree at the prestigious Royal Northern College of Music in the United Kingdom, studying with Rob Buckland, and is currently completing his doctoral studies at the University of California in Los Angeles under Professor Douglas Masick. Soon, Matthew will be returning to South Africa to continue teaching at Pretoria Boys High School, the University of Pretoria, and the University of South Africa. Please welcome my guest today, South African saxophonist, Matthew Lombard. So, um, Matthew, Thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you. A long way from home for both of us. <laughs> Indeed. In Zagreb. Now, I'm very curious about your activities because from what I understand, classical saxophone in South Africa is perhaps in its infancy. Is that right?
1: I would say so, yes. Um, we we have some things going on with classical saxophone in South Africa, but it's it's very small at the moment. And... That's one of my big passions is to try and improve that and trying to establish something more um, concrete like we have in other parts of the world. That's something I'm really passionate about.
0: So how did you actually get started with the sax?
1: I started when I was in high school. Uh, There happened to be a great classical saxophone teacher at the high school I was going to. And um, he. in South Africa, we use the i think it's similar to australia where we have the the graded exams um abrsm or trinity or uh, similar things like that and that's basically how uh, the tuition is focused uh, whereas now i've experienced in in the us it's slightly different um in south africa we we use that as the general standard and that tends to be on the classical side and when you take that even further uh, the natural route, I suppose, is classical. Although a lot of students do go into jazz after that. Uh, I carried on with the classical and was encouraged to enter competitions in my late high school years, um, and that's where I, I grew especially fond of the instrument as a classical instrument. So that's basically how I started.
0: How would you describe the early teachers or teacher uh, that you that you've had?
1: Um. A big interest in jazz as well, but mostly focused on the classical players, um, uh, the classical side of playing things. Um, and the teacher in particular that taught me in those years, his name is Mark Buter. Uh He's now living in England, um, doing language um, at a university. Uh, and he, he had probably a very similar path from what I had in South Africa. um, And he took it further because he loved it so much, um, even though there weren't many other people doing it in the country. Um, He also drew influence from a lot of international players. Uh, So a lot of the players that we hear here in Zagreb um, were key in terms of their recordings and the influence they had on his playing and, as a result, my playing. throughout my high school career I was listening to recordings of Camp and Delanglais and you know all the all the guys that we listened to um, and that was a, a big inspiration so along with those teachers that taught me um, came this world and the sound concept uh, from all the other parts of the world um, and that sort of modeled my thinking going forward in terms of how I wanted my sound to turn out
0: were there any particular styles of teaching that that you started with? Would you say you had a, a strict technical regime to follow, or something a little bit more encouraging? <laughs> There's mm. different different approaches, especially in the early years. What uh, what was your experience?
1: The early years, um, I think, I tended to have a more strict uh, teaching. Uh, a lot of etudes. Um, Ferling etudes, uh, the sort of standard stuff that you would do, um, that was quite a big focus, and and slowly, obviously, as most people do, you move away from that uh, gradually. Um, but that was definitely a big focus: uh, uh, cleaning up the technique, uh, having a good technique, uh, but also thinking a lot about sound um, and uh, ambush concepts. And I I went through. In fact, my very first teacher was, was mostly a jazz player and a, a doubler. Um, and as a result, I went through some embouchure changes in the early years as well. It's probably a common thing for a lot of people. Um, and even into my, my um, undergraduate studies, I started experimenting more with changing the embouchure. Um, the first time I came to Europe for a masterclass was in Frankfurt. Um, where I, I met uh, Vincent David and Arne Bornkamp and Jan Schulter-Burnert uh, from Germany. Um, and that's, I think, the first point in my playing career that I realized um, uh, there was a lot that I was doing wrong, that I could do better and more efficiently. Um, and I, I started adapting my ambush mostly, and also the way I play. Um, in a different way and started thinking more differently about how I was playing. Uh, So for me, um, even from the beginning, that whole sound concept has been a big thing, Uh, especially what I was mentioning earlier about listening to various recordings in the early years. Um, I had all these ideas that I've been hearing on the recordings, and I needed to figure out how I'm going to do my thing and not necessarily sound like one person, but, um, sound more like what everyone was doing. Um, so that was a challenge because we, in South Africa, we're a little bit limited in that we don't have the live performances to reference. Uh, we don't have too many people playing classical saxophone. Uh, when I was learning, I don't think I remember anyone local playing classical concerts. Um, Yeah, so that's definitely one of the big things for me. Uh, The pedagogy was definitely strict in terms of technique, but also um, I had a lot to think about in terms of my sound and the ambition development.
0: Would you say that that experience at the masterclass during your undergraduate years, did that then kind of spur you on to study internationally? Yes, absolutely. So you, Um, you chose to go to the UK. Mm-hmm. what was it that that drew you rob buckland <laughs> well how did, how did you meet rob
1: um well rob i i had heard recordings of rob uh, and loved the recordings uh i just i felt that his sound was something different it was it was unique and it wasn't the same as a lot of other things that i had heard um and i can't quite remember how i ended up getting in touch with him but i i remember looking him up and seeing where he taught and liking the idea of england very much Um, number one because i speak english and it's a logical choice england or america um and and uh, when looking at where to study you look at who to study with Um, and that was a big influence for me Um, And the year I spent in England was incredible uh, subsequently. I I feel like as a player I grew the most in that year. Um, My ideas about my sound, my um, career path uh, were all really focused after that year. Um, So that was a big turning point for me.
0: I'm sure Rob won't mind, but could you perhaps describe some of the differences in his teaching compared to what you'd had before?
1: Yes. So uh, at that point, um, because I was doing my master's, it was, um, there was probably less of a focus on the technical, uh, as in the finger technique, uh, and more of a focus on the sound, uh, very much for me, uh, fixing those problems I was talking about with the ambusher. And Rob was really big on... um, making me or enabling me to articulate what it is that I need to do in order to make sound so that I understand what I'm doing. Uh, I remember one of my first lessons with him um, was a real eye-opener for me because he would ask me, so um, how do I make sound? And I would sort of answer something like, uh, blow air into the instrument. And he'd say, well, how do you blow air into the instrument? it goes down the rabbit hole and, and sort of pinpointing exactly what you're doing in order to, uh, to make that sound and understanding the process involved. I found that was one of the key things he helped me with is in terms of how I want to sound and how I expect to make that sound and also being able to predict what's going to come out of the instrument depending on what I do. Uh, that was a, a big thing for me with Rob. Um, and he also taught me to, to push the boundaries of the sound also, um, in terms of projection, in terms of expressivity, um, and also varying tone colors and not just sticking to one type of idea. Um, and I think he was also big on personalizing the sound, uh, to, to a big extent. He would, um, I, I think at that time and. I would imagine always Rob's students don't generally sound the same. Um, Everyone has their own sound. And I think that's a great characteristic of a teacher uh, is that uh, not everyone sounds exactly the same. Everyone finds their sound in a certain way. Um, And obviously there are some aspects that will be influenced by the teacher. But um, I think it's great that I could find my own sound through that.
0: Now, (laughs) since you've finished your master's degree, you've, moved again Mm -hmm. to the States. Did you go straight to the States? or No. So what what were you doing after your master's degree?
1: So my master's degree I managed to do in one year. Um, Fortunately, it was a a one-year intensive program. And as a result, I was able to take a sabbatical from my job in South Africa, uh, which was basically high school saxophone teaching. I had a full-time job there, which was really fortunate for me. Um, so I went back to that uh, for three more years after Manchester. And um, at that point, well, actually, it it, it goes back to before England. I, I'd I been wanting to get a doctorate in the end at some point in my life for a long time. Um, and uh, I'd been wanting to study with Doug Massek for a long time in my life. Um, I met Doug probably... 2006 or seven, so quite a while ago when he was touring South Africa. Um, I had a master class or two with him. I had heard him play, uh, and ever since then, I've wanted to study with Doug Masik at UCLA. Uh, it's always been a dream, and it's always been one of those things where it's so expensive, I'll never be able to do it. Uh, and um, in 2016, we, well, actually 2015, we decided um we would try and see if we can make this happen my family and i um and it did not look really possible <laughs> based on uh tuition in the states and living cost in los angeles uh, and we managed to pull it together with scholarships and um, opportunities from ucla and south africa um, and we made the move so it was it was a real it was a real big thing for me and my family too um, but it, i think it was the right time um, i at that point had been teaching high school saxophone students for about 10 years um and i felt that based on my vision for what i want to do in south africa long term i needed to push myself further um, so that i could lead the field in a way uh, and that I could I could try and train up more teachers in South Africa so we can have a bigger saxophone community classical saxophone community Um, that's one of my big passions and I I still feel that um, getting this doctorate in the States is going to be very beneficial to me uh, and to the classical saxophone in
0: in South Africa that sounds uh, exciting yeah and I get the feeling that you like to organize things that you don't just play the saxophone but perhaps you have a bigger vision that in order to play the saxophone you have to have events Mm -hmm. to have that saxophone performed in. So how did you get started or how did you come up with the idea for organising events where the saxophone can um, really showcase itself?
1: I think I would probably credit that to my time in England again. Uh, Rob inspired me to... um, to pursue this idea of growing the saxophone community in South Africa. Uh, What I gained from the international masterclasses and studying in England and all of that uh, was seeing what was out there and what was possible. Uh, In England in particular, uh, what was interesting to me was that they also needed to grow the saxophone community uh, in recent years. Uh, and that they also did start with very few classical saxophone players um, as robert tested to and i i thought that was a big inspiration to me because i could see um, how great things are going there uh, and where i wanted to take south africa um, so that led me to um to speak with a colleague in south africa uh, karen devroop uh, who is a jazz saxophone player uh, and also um, the head of the one of the big universities' music departments there, UNISA. Um, and he and I um, spoke a little bit when I returned to South Africa. I was actually playing in a competition at the time. Um, and he basically said, well, let's just organize something, let's just make it happen. Uh, I was particularly inspired by um, the saxophone days that they do at the RNCM uh, in Manchester. Uh, and I thought, let's just have a saxophone day. Um, Karen said, uh, we might be able to get Unisa's backing uh, and we turned it into a national saxophone symposium uh, and then invited Apollo to come out. And uh, it was great. It sort of took off much quicker than I thought it would. Uh, with the support of Karen. Uh, and then from there, we decided we want to keep the ball rolling and we want to just keep it going annually so that um, we can keep this all happening and then we can keep it all in the front of people's minds. Um, there are challenges associated with it. Uh, one of the big ones is always funding, um, as with anything in the music world. But I think um, we, we are excited at what's happening um in fact next week i'm going to south africa straight after this to go and run the symposiums again so um it's a very exciting project for me it's it's close to my heart um, and uh it's something that i think will um really help us in the long term uh, for south african
0: classical saxophone i think south africa like australia is a long way from the states and a long way from europe and getting people to come of course mm. is expensive yes so that's of course a big part of the challenge but also people who travel a lot don't always want to travel a long way mm-hmm. because it one super tiring takes a lot of time so yeah there's challenges yeah. and every time you can get someone to visit it's a bonus it's great absolutely and if you compare that To the experiences in Europe where there's uh, I mean of course neighboring countries Mm -hmm. I mean two days ago I went to another country for a rehearsal and then came back (laughs) in Australia that would be ludicrous yeah (laughs) but here things are close right and therefore people move around much more Mm -hmm. so I know in Australia when we have a visiting artist Mm -hmm. come everyone's very excited yeah (laughs) because it's a rare thing yes and it sounds like a, a similar situation Definitely, um, yeah. But each time somebody visits, it stirs up um, a whole bunch of connections. Mm. And I've seen would have a, a guest artist come into Australia and then two, three years later, some students start to disappear and they've gone to that oh. visiting artist and they'll go and study with them. Mm-hmm. The connections are formed and the, yeah. those connections last for a long time. Mm. And it's a very interesting process. And it only happens, of course, if people come. Right. So it sounds like your vision there is to keep bringing people to South Africa through your symposium Mm -hmm. and see where that takes you. Does that sound right? Yeah,
1: pretty much. I mean, like I said, with the very first one, we were fortunate to have um, a a major sponsor. Um, And we could bring out two saxophone quartets uh, internationally, which is incredible. And we haven't been able to do that in subsequent years, but we have been able to... Uh, this year, for example, we're bringing Doug Masik out from Los Angeles, uh, thanks to some funding that we sourced in, in the US. Um, and, and that's great. And if we can do that, um, even if we can, for now, bring one or two international artists out every year, um, that'll be great. I mean, that's, that's the goal.
0: <laughs> you seem uh, determined to essentially be in South Africa. I know plenty of people who leave their home country and they don't come back. They find opportunities elsewhere. Um, What is it that draws you to be in your own country? Well,
1: (laughs) um, I've always seen South Africa as home, uh, mostly because all my family lives there. Um, And also just because I grew up there. I mean, it's it's kind of – even when I was in England – there's always that temptation of is the grass greener on the other side and um I think the world is an imperfect place in any case and it doesn't matter where you go there's always going to be problems um and I think South Africa's got its problems but I think a lot of other places have problems too um and I think I'm just drawn to to the country itself uh, mostly because of family and because i call it home Um, but from a career perspective i feel like there's opportunity for me uh, because of the lack of opportunity if that makes sense absolutely I, i i see the fact that there's a very small classical saxophone culture as an opportunity for me um whereas in other parts of the world like the u.s there are tons of opportunities, but there are also tons of people doing the same thing. Um, and for me, I, f- I feel like I can make a difference in South Africa, um, whereas anywhere else in the world, yes, sure, I can make a difference too, but um, South Africa is close to my heart. So I think that's it's kind of where, I, where I'd always want to end up.
0: Would you say that your career is operating to a plan or is it something more organic that is developing?
1: I think it's a little bit of both, maybe. Um, My sort of loose long-term plan is for South Africa to grow into something more similar to the UK or the US or Europe uh, in terms of classical saxophone. Um, But at the same time, if I look short-term, my goals are dependent on what comes up and what opportunities come up um I I definitely hope to try and get into a university uh so that I can put more people through uh sort of the undergraduate and graduate education process for classical saxophone and produce more teachers uh I feel that that's an important sort of position of influence uh and that's what I'd like to try and aspire to um, but in terms of how that's going to look practically in a year's time, I'm not quite sure yet. Uh, what I do know is that, um, my work uh, in terms of organizing the Saxman Symposiums and, um, the Saxman Society that I've just, uh, founded there in South Africa, um, that work is going to continue no matter where I am. Uh, whether it's South Africa or whether maybe the U.S. for a while. It, it depends on, on what's going on and where I'm needed the most. Um, but fortunately, I can, I can do my work in South Africa wherever I am, uh, which is what I've been doing for the last two years anyway.
0: Now, one thing I'm always curious about is how people manage the day-to-day activities of work and all of that and practising are there any special, I don't want to say techniques, but are there any special routines that you use in your practice that allows you to time manage, as opposed to when you're a student when we mm-hmm. had many, many hours? Yeah. Uh, how do you cope with that?
1: Well, I mean, right now, I am fortunate that I, I kind of am in that student phase at the end of it. Um, not that I necessarily have tons of time to devote to practicing, like you say. Um, but i I think nowadays I tend to practice towards a goal, uh, and I like deadlines <laughs> because they motivate me. Uh, so I set myself deadlines and and I um, I mean at UCLA, for example, I have access to a world class recording studio uh, for free as part of the university and. one of my goals is to just get into the studio as often as I can to try and record stuff. And part of that is also preparing for that well. Um, So I, my practice time tends to be not very well structured in terms of scheduled in a day. Uh, But I find that I have a lot of opportunities to like, you know, working at UCLA, I, I am able to, find you know an hour here or an hour there and you know in between the work I'm doing or, or the research I'm doing I, and go and practice and I find that's quite helpful um, and I find that my practice intensifies the closer I get to a performance or a recording session or something
0: so yeah the I guess the goal of practice is you spend as much time as possible to learn how to spend as little time as possible. Exactly, <laughs> and hopefully by that stage we're pretty good. That's a good way to put it. I like that. <laughs> do you have uh, something else outside of music that that you're passionate about?
1: It depends how you define as something outside of music. I mean, my my family is is a big part of my life, um, and I've got two little girls um, and another one on the way, um, and and they've come to the other side of the world with me just for me to do this degree and. I mean that for me is a big thing, and um, I I love my kids. I love my wife, and it's it's great to spend time with my family whenever I can. Um, we, yeah, I mean we we do all sorts of being in the states. We're fortunate to be able to go camping and hiking, and you know do all those those fun things that the kids enjoy and we enjoy, and um, we get to bond a lot like that. I mean two weeks ago I was in the Sequoia National Park uh, in California and just being in nature and and surrounded by nature is incredible Um, we we're also a Christian family so we um, we attend a a great church there in California um, and uh, that is a big part of our lives too I mean we we are um, very fortunate to to be able to to attend a good church uh, in california Uh, and we're grateful uh, to god for the blessings in our lives uh, particularly with actually being able to be in california when we didn't think we were um it's it's been incredible for us so that's that's also a, a big thing for me is to um realize that everything that has happened in my life in terms of career goals and and everything is is provision from god as well um and on a personal note it's it's a great encouragement to me to know that despite uncertainty and not knowing what's going to happen next after my doctorate um i know that um, my my path is predestined and i i have comfort in knowing that i I can trust in God for that as well.
0: So do you think that's part of what I was asking before about the plan, regardless of what plan you might have for yourself or Mm. what opportunities may arise? Are you saying, therefore, there's um, a bigger plan underlying all of that?
1: You know, we we made the choice to go to the U.S., but uh, without God's provision, that wouldn't have been possible either. Uh, We actually made the decision to move to the U.S. before we got confirmation that I received a scholarship um, thinking that if it didn't work out we'd just cancel it or we'd sell our house and (laughs) in South Africa and pay for the studies in California Uh, fortunately we didn't need to do that um, because the scholarships that come through Um, but I yeah I I definitely feel that it's uh, part of it is having comfort in that fact that I I don't need to worry about it too much because something will come up.
0: (laughs) I saw a photo of you the other day I think you just played um, the escapades yeah and the photo was of you shaking hands I think with the composer John Mm -hmm. Williams now I'm very curious to know (laughs) first of all how that performance came about but also how do you respond to performing in front of a celebrated composer such as John Williams
1: hmm. so um, the performance came about uh, because it was programmed with the UCLA Symphony Orchestra um, and because I'm the graduate student there they um, asked me if I wanted to be the soloist on it and I of course said yes I'd love to um, <laughs> I I played uh, some of it before uh, with piano but i never played it with orchestra so it was a great opportunity for me um i also knew that john williams lived lives a block away from ucla Um, and that was in the back of my mind thinking maybe he'll come he probably won't he's too high profile Um, he ended up giving a seminar the same day of the dress rehearsal and the concert Uh, And at the end of that seminar, that's when the dress rehearsal started and uh, his good friend, Gloria Chang, the professor who does contemporary music at UCLA, uh, she brought him around to the hall uh, where we were playing it and he sat and listened. Um, It it was a a surreal experience for me. I I never imagined I'd play escapades for John Williams. Um, So it was kind of like a personal performance for him in a way. Uh, very informal type of visit um but he he was quite happy with it and and that was encouraging um just because i i mean i don't play it like it was played on the form score uh and i don't think many classical saxophone players do and, and you never know quite how a composer will react to that um and i think he was quite happy with that and uh I won't lie and say I wasn't nervous when I played it for him. <laughs> I was probably more nervous when I played it for him than when I played it for the audience, audience later that night. Um, but it was it was an exciting experience too. Uh, I mean, in the end, he is just another composer who's coming to listen to one of his pieces, um, and and that's how he acted too. He was very down to earth, very humble about it, and um, he didn't make a big deal about it.
0: He, yeah, You obviously have a considerable experience of working with composers mm-hmm. because you have a keen interest in developing South African repertoire, I guess. Mm. So how important is it to you to work directly with the composer of a piece?
1: I think it's very important uh, depending on the composer. Um, I've been fortunate in South Africa, we're fortunate to have the South African Music Rights Organisation, which uh, or SAMRO for short. Uh, they they actually pay to commission composers. I don't think it works like that anywhere else in the world. Um, so as an artist, I don't have to pay for it in South Africa. Um, I can send an application to them and they can commission a composer to, uh, to write something. Um, and I've been fortunate to get a lot of music written that way uh, for me um, for various projects. And uh, I mean, where I was teaching at Pretoria Boys High School before I came to L.A., um, and the head of department there is also a composer, Neil van der Waart. Uh, and just before we moved to LA, we actually, in collaboration with him, recorded a, a whole CD of his music for saxophone. Um, which was an incredible opportunity because a lot of that was music that I'd commissioned. Um, and a lot of the time with him, I would definitely work with him. He, he tends to be more of a choral composer, but has written quite a bit of wind music as well. Um, especially in recent years and um, I've in my experience with South African composers um, they are and I think in general with composers um, is that relationship is always great in terms of um, the composer wanting feedback in terms of how you know can this be not better but can this be different to make it more um, natural on the instrument or uh, that that type of thing is one of the most common um, Another composer I worked with in South Africa Claire Loveday um, I'll be playing one of her pieces here in Zagreb. Uh, she wrote a concerto for me a few years back um, and also in the even in the early stages just talking about ideas and influences with her uh, how, how interested she was in what what I liked um, influenced her composition style as well. So that's been very interesting for me and um, very satisfying uh, g- going through the process with the composer often and then performing the piece ultimately.
0: One of my passions is, besides the first performance, is making sure music gets played again. Mm-hmm. Have you found pieces that have started to find a voice that that? that creep into the repertoire that get performed multiple times, that become favourites, I guess, in a a sense, even if they're your favourites that you like to programme? Or do you focus more on uh, a stream of new pieces?
1: Mm, That's a good question. Um, I think because there's so few people playing the South African repertoire, I tend to focus on a stream of new pieces more than bringing out the same stuff over again but they're definitely I mean I mentioned Doug Massek earlier who who toured South Africa a lot in the in the recent years um, and he actually worked with a lot of South African composers too um, and a lot of those pieces from from a while back uh, certainly in my repertoire do come up again. Um, So there's a little bit of both, I guess, Uh, a little bit of um, bringing back music that's recognizable. But I think I'm probably I probably lean towards focusing on bringing out new stuff or uh, presenting new things.
0: I guess the reason I'm interested in that area, because the way you describe the funding of a new composition, if it's performed once Mm -hmm. and they're paid a, let's say, a substantial amount or a fair amount Mm -hmm. uh, for their work we call it an expensive piece mm. if it's played twice then it's half as uh, it's it has twice the value right. and then if it's played a hundred times so on its value increases from that initial funding mm-hmm. and therefore the funding essentially it's very easy to justify yes yes oh, if we commission this piece it's going to get played uh, mm-hmm. hundreds of times uh I, I find very interested in that process mm-hmm. and it's not there's no magic formula of course it depends on the, ultimately on the repertoire and the, the quality of the performances. But it depends also on another aspect is is how that music is then transmitted out to the wider community. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like if you're organising international events and presenting within those some South African music, there's a bigger chance, therefore, that that mu- music will exit the country and, mm. you know, enter the mainstream yeah. outside.
1: That, that's and, definitely my hope. Yeah. Um, I, I've certainly done that in in the U.S. Um, I, the North American Saxophone Alliance conferences, um, the last two years I've performed, um, I've included South African recitals in those and same here in Zagreb. Um, and I think that's important. I mean, for me, there's no point in... Um, in playing music that everyone else is playing. Uh, I need to be presenting the music from my country and and letting people hear it. And I've had some good feedback that way as well um, with people that hear it and, and are interested in um, getting the music. And I mean, that's the way it spreads and the way we ultimately get more performances. Um, and I suppose time will tell um, how that continues down the line.
0: Now, is improvisation something that forms part of your music making
1: a little bit Uh, i i find that um i i do enjoy uh going a little bit out of the box here and there or uh or being flexible enough to change something um sort of organically or or uh as it happens um and I wouldn't call myself a a good improviser, uh, but I would say that I'm certainly open to uh, using improvisation when I need to and feel that it's an important part of classical playing nowadays um, because so often that happens uh, where you get, even in contemporary music, you've, you've got a lot of you know free sections where you've just got to do something and you need to be creative and and think stylistically in context of the piece and um i think that is an important part of it and i i, I do i don't necessarily do it very often but i do uh certainly when when it's required uh do that
0: and how important has recording been to you both developmentally but also career-wise
1: um i found it really great uh to be able to listen back and and hear from a i suppose kind of like an audience perspective it's not quite the same um but i found it very helpful uh i found it also very encouraging uh when when you're not sure what something sounds like or how it's perceived and you listen back and and if if it sounds good that that's really like a i suppose a motivator to to keep going and um in terms of general practice, I find it really helpful to record myself just to hear um, how things come out. And you know, as a performer, you always need to exaggerate things a little more than than you think you do, so that the audience actually gets the picture. Um, and and that's valuable in terms of um, recording repertoire. Again, it's just a great a great way to improve your technique and to make sure that you're um polishing the music as much as you can before you get into that studio Um, and just generally a great way to learn pieces
0: now i have some let's call them rapid fire questions Mm -hmm. so a quick question if you like with a quick answer okay (laughs) it doesn't always work out that way (laughs) is there something that you believe that other people disagree with
1: um vibrato right i think
0: what is it about your vibrato perhaps that's different
1: well uh, uh, everyone's vibrato is (laughs) different um and i i feel that um i tend to use vibrato as an expressive tool mostly um and use it also to shape phrases uh, rather than sort of having a on off switch type of idea um, but at the same time, realizing that different styles require different styles of vibrato. Um, and I find that uh, some people do that. Some people don't do that. Some people have a like a go-to vibrato for everything. Some people uh, vary it. Uh, and like I said, everyone's got a different vibrato. So, right.
0: <laughs> yeah. If you just had one piece of music that you could play now forever, mm. what piece would that be?
1: I love the Dubois concerto. Uh, the very opening with that cadenza in the beginning, I um, one of my first teachers gave me that when I was sort of late high school years.
0: Um, and I've just loved it ever since. It's just beautiful. If you just had one hour to practice, maybe that's a lot, <laughs> but if you just had one hour to practice, how would you spend that time?
1: Um, I would probably focus... Uh, most if i had one hour it would probably be because i needed to uh, rehearse something or perform something in a chamber setting or something Uh, and i would imagine that i would i would spend most of my time on the technical aspects um, and thinking about what type of sound i want to create
0: in your experience who is one of the largest contributors to the saxophone
1: Um, i think there are many (laughs) um and it's hard to pinpoint one uh but i i have huge respect for arne bornkamp uh, and what he's done uh mostly in terms of of the way he plays uh and how he he kind of moves away from tradition in some ways in a lot of ways in his playing um and also plays around with ideas of performance practice uh which is really he released a cd um what was it vintage saxophones revisited or something um and and it was a 19th century performance practice focused uh informed performance on period instruments Uh, and i'm interested in this because it's basically my dissertation topic for next year um and i I just found that fascinating i think that's that's going out of the box Uh, it's doing something different uh, even though it's it's normally not done like that. And I think that's, that's really great. He pushes the boundaries. Uh, he also blows those lines between classical and jazz. And I think that's uh, it's what typifies the contemporary performer today.
0: If we learn from our mistakes, is it okay to make mistakes? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and do, do you cope okay uh, if a mistake happens uh, in performance?
1: yes I, I think i do um one of the things that really struck me was uh when studying with rob buckland um one of his early cds uh he I, th- I think it's in the in the liner notes or something um where he mentioned that uh everything was like one take and there might be a mistake here or two but he wanted to keep that authenticity and i that's always stuck with me i i I feel that we're, we're all human, we all make mistakes, and a clean, polished performance is not necessarily better than something with a mistake here or there, um, but that has the right intensity and the right feel. Um, so I feel that making music is more important than playing all the notes perfectly.
0: Do you, do you find that to be a common approach
1: no, I don't think it's a common approach. Um,
0: but it's one you appreciate. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, a live recording, I think, is, is so much more genuine sometimes. Uh, and, I mean, even me, I, I get into a studio and I, I edit stuff. And, you know, that, that happens. I know how that goes. Um, but there's something more exciting and, and more energetic about a live recording, uh, even with mistakes.
0: Um, now you've got uh, some big performances to do this week Mm. what do you do right before you walk on stage that helps you to play at your best
1: uh i make sure i've got the best possible read
0: (laughs) um can i use your best possible (laughs) read yeah
1: uh funny thing about me i i tend to get sleepy just before i go on stage (laughs) i don't know why um especially in a big performance and then by the time i'm on i'm fine uh i i like to just be calm and ready i like to be early i like to make sure everything's set up make sure i'm in tune so that when i get on stage i don't need to worry about that and i'm fortunate in that I, i don't tend to get very nervous when i play i like to um i like to speak to the audience before i play just to calm myself and so that there's no sort of awkward silence before we start. And I think that's a great thing for me.
0: Yeah. Now, if you could send a message back in time to your younger self, is there any piece of advice you would, would have liked to have heard?
1: I would probably say that I don't need to worry as much about what everyone else is doing. And I need to worry more about where I see myself in the next five to 10 years. In terms of what i
0: want to do what are some of the changes that you've seen in the development of saxophone and what are some of the things that haven't changed that you thought might change
1: players are taking it more seriously in south africa uh, slowly but uh, there are certainly um, more people than there were five years ago playing the classical saxophone uh, seriously for concerts and for recitals and touring Um, and that's encouraging Um, things that i would expect to have developed more are things like um audience expectation in south africa particularly Mm -hmm. Um, whenever i play a recital there people are surprised that the saxophone can sound like that and that i would have hoped would change by now and um but that's also a difficult thing because you, you can never reach more than like however many people at a time and uh, it's a challenge to to make that the norm when people think of the saxophone. Um, everywhere in the world, but in South Africa particularly. Sure.
0: Now, is there a recent project that you would like to share, like tell us about that people might be interested in having a look at?
1: I, I sort of have a number of things going on. Uh, and the one thing that I'm trying to push now and working on actively is um, the South African Saxophone Society. Uh, That is overseeing our Saxman Symposiums in South Africa Um, and will eventually oversee a number of other things like um, professional development things for teachers and um, more masterclass settings or workshops for students. Um, And that's something that's my big sort of passion back home, Uh, the thing that I'll be going back for next week as well. Um, And other than that, I mean other than being here in Zagreb and and doing all this I think that's my my next month's focus Um, and probably in the next year or so I'll be I'm slowly working on a a CD to release as well Um, I've been recording a lot of music with electronics uh, recently and um, I hope to record some chamber music as well and I'm not quite sure what the CD is going to look like yet, but I'm putting a whole bunch of stuff together for hopefully for at least by next year.
0: Where's the best place for people to find more about your activities? Are you uh, big on your website? Do you prefer social media? What's the best place for people to find out about you?
1: Um, I tend to prefer social media. Uh, I do have a website, um, which is www.matthewlombard.co.za. Za, I'm not sure how you like to pronounce that in america i get trouble for that um also the saxophone society is online at www.saxphonesociety.org um but facebook i i've got a facebook page uh, under my name uh so does Sa- saxophone society um and that's mostly where i where i will post stuff um and Yeah, the website usually gets
0: updated too. (laughs) (laughs) I'll put links to all of these uh, in in the show notes so people can uh, find you easily. And I guess finally, you're already making such a big contribution to the saxophone in your home country. What do you see for yourself over the next 10, 20 years?
1: I would hope that I could um, establish myself in a university in South Africa so that I have the freedom to to perform and to teach and to record and to research um, and also to develop uh, the saxophone society to something bigger Um, i have a long-term dream to one day host the world saxophone congress in south africa Um, and we will work on that in the coming years and uh, hopefully we'll have something ready to present as a proposal Um, at one of the next few congresses um, but that's something uh, that i'd like to do in south africa i think that would be a really great opportunity before we can do that however we need to just develop a few more things in the country so
0: fantastic matthew thank you very much for your time today thank you and that's i wish uh, wish you the best for the week here in Zagreb.
1: thank you very much
0: just before you go a quick reminder to let you know that show notes any links and a full text transcript are also available It would mean a lot to me if you could leave a review for the show by visiting barrysacks.com forward slash iTunes. You can subscribe for a new episode each week. And thanks again for joining me and my guests on Barry Sacks' show.